I'm Paul Nuglas, executive producer of Crisonia. Thanks for joining us for this month's Crisonia conversation. Crisonia brings together innovators, entrepreneurs, investors, experts, and people passionate about the premise that food is health to both drive awareness and more importantly, find actionable solutions. In the US, we spend more on healthcare for diet-related illnesses than we do on food itself. This will continue until we collectively commit to change and find practical, actionable ways to make good food as craveable, delicious, and affordable as bad. Until we get to a place where food works to prevent and reverse the health crises we face today, instead of foster them. These conversations and our annual forum work to bring valuable information and advanced dialogue from corporations to kitchens. Again, thanks for joining us today. And thanks for being part of the journey to better. Because food is health and change starts here. I'm Carter Williams, CEO of iSelect. We focus on hard problems. One of those hard problems is Americans spend 1.6 trillion every year on food, but spend nearly 2 trillion on diet-related illnesses like type 2 diabetes, obesity, and cardiovascular disease. Each of these is fatal in their own rights. They're more fatal when they're comorbidities for COVID-19. These are tough problems. We believe that you cannot solve the healthcare challenge we face without the evolution to a new, better, and more nutritious food system. Our work at iSelect and the broader work we're doing with Crisonia is focused on bringing the right people together to make this happen, to affect the change, to bring entrepreneurs forward, large corporations, healthcare systems, and patients together to make real progress, to solve the problem associated with healthcare, to introduce better food, to make it so that food and health are combined as a solution to improve our quality of life. Our hope is that results are measured not only through the traditional financial metrics, but through a fundamental and positive impact on reversing the footprint and impact of diet-related illness. Hi, I'm Paul Nuglas, executive producer of Crisonia, and today's conversation is focused on putting a price on carbon and whether it represents a real opportunity for bipartisan cooperation. We are fortunate to be joined in this conversation by Jody Longshore, Vice President of Sales, Marketing, and Sustainability at Centera, James Gluick, former Staff Director, U.S. Senate Committee on Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry, and Carter Williams, CEO of iSelect, a St. Louis-based venture capitalist focused on investing at the nexus of food and health. In February, I selected a very insightful deep dive on the science of soil carbon sequestration. Today, we are gonna to try to move beyond the science to focus on the evolving perception of soil-based carbon sequestration and developments in terms of carbon markets, as well as the role of industry and government in helping shape and make this a reality. We highly encourage audience participation as this truly is a conversation. You should pose your questions through the Q&A function and we will get to as many as time permits. With that, let's start off with soil carbon markets are nascent, but are growing on a worldwide basis. And it seems to be all anyone wants to talk about. 
Is there consensus as to how they are developing and being built? Anyone, anyone jump in? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think what we're seeing is that there's a lot of different organizations taking different approaches to carbon markets. And, you know, in a lot of respects, I think that's actually a positive thing because there are uh, different participants on both the buy and sell side may have different requirements as far as what they're willing to pay, the level of verification that they're willing to accept or to uh, participate in, whether if it's on the production side. Um, and so I think it's I think it's a, a really interesting uh, time seeing all of these these different approaches to creating an opportunity to to trade carbon. You yeah, know, I, I think I'd echo that that there's not a, a clear consensus on on what a credit looks like or what that price looks like, but it is in that early stage. I mean, everything from a, a trading platform to, to folks who are looking at more of a contract uh, construct. And so uh, a pretty wide range within the marketplace. For, for agriculture, how does this translate to educating farmers and interacting with other industries? I think farmers know, um, you know better than, than most anyone else that uh, you know, the role of carbon and, and the importance of, of quality soil. And so I think they've come to this conversation a lot better informed than others in the value chain. I think there's a lot of activity within that value chain, downstream consumer facing players, very interested in engaging in the conversation, um, but, but really it, it, you know, the rubber hits the road on the farm and getting farmers engaged and, and to see the benefit. I think the, the challenge from a farmer's perspective is trying to put that economic benefit um, on that farm as well. You know, making changes in practices and how they do uh, their you know, production. What is the impact on cost or, or benefit? Yes, I think you know when when we talk to farmers, we see a lot of um, both excitement and and apprehension about this. You know, and on the excitement side, you know, I think a lot of farmers look at uh, the requirements for for sustainable farming and or sequestering carbon, and and they look at the practices that that contribute to it, and they see things that they're already doing anyways, or that they're adopting at an increasing rate, and so you know they see this as an opportunity to get credit for the good things that they that they're already implementing and or and or have implemented in the past, um, and then I think there's a little bit of apprehension on you know the the potential for you know, increased uh, regulation or oversight or, you know, reducing their, their license to operate, um, those sorts of things. And so, so I think it's, you know, there's sort of mixed feelings about it, but, um, but I think for the, for the most part, you know, the way that things stand today, um, you know, I think there's a lot of excitement about the opportunity that it presents. We had had a question, I had a question come to me um, before the conversation started, but are established carbon markets such as in forestry where there's an established spectrum of credits. Are these being used as models or are we effectively reinventing the wheel? So I think, I think, they, I think they are being used as models. I think one of the challenges is that today um, there is not a universally accepted methodology for quantifying carbon. And there are still some questions to be answered around uh, things like permanence of carbon that is sequestered uh, through agriculture and, and things like that. So, you know, I think as far as the structure of the markets go, you know, I, I see some, some similarities to, uh, you know, what's been done with, uh, you know, like green palm and things like that in the past in the, in the, the palm oils industry and in forestry as well. So there's, 
there's certainly some similarities there, but I think there's still some some work to be done on arriving at a an agreed upon um, standard. Yeah, I'd say we were at today versus 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when when Congress last really looked at this with any seriousness in a cap and trade conversation, you know, a, a lot of certainty on on sort of a very rigid approach. I mean, this conversation is really more driven by that consumer demand as these markets evolve. It's it's trying to hit the, that, that point of, of what the consumer demand looks like when it comes to the credit uh, so that to maintain that voluntary approach, that market based approach, which seems to be some of the underlying points in the conversation from a legislative perspective. And um, I thought I'd throw one at Carter. On, on our prep call last week, you know, we talked about how in many instances this seems to be presented to farmers as a way to make money. And, you know, this seems somewhat cynical if you take a step back, but is it the right approach or is it the necessary approach in order to get people to really start to embrace this? I don't think we know the answer to that. Uh, it farmers probably know better than anybody that if they put more carbon in the ground, they increase performance. They've probably known that for twenty thousand years, <laughs> in one way or the other. And uh, I've seen a few different versions of this. I've seen some people that are very passionate on the climate issue say farmer, you know, farmers don't understand. So that's annoying. Uh, I have also seen people who represent the farmer community that are eager if, hey, if we can make more money by saying that we've packaged up this carbon in a different way and you want to pay me more for it, go for it. So you've got, you've got uh, those are imperfect extremes in the conversation. Uh, and then we look at you know, 10 new companies a week that are focused on <clears throat> a combination of agronomy and genetics and, and crop inputs that frankly, from a venture standpoint, we can see a, a future in which the combination of those things brought together effectively lets the farmer increase yield, increases soil health and reduces, reduces the cost of the output and increases the margin, reduces the cost of the input and increases the farmer's margins. And so if I were left alone, I would, you know, I'll say this every day of the week, I'd, I'd let innovation move its path forward and try to sort of keep it the markets at bay. Uh, but I, I think we're clearly in a position where farmers are more than happy to figure out a way to package this up if we can package it up and, you know, near term, get extra capital to help accelerate the innovation cycle. Yeah, you know, when, when, you, when you talk about revenue opportunities from, from this, I think there's actually a number of different ways that people are looking at uh, revenue streams. So, you know, the one is direct payment for carbon sequestration. Um, but another is as you improve soil health, you know, you reduce the, the variation of outcomes that you get in, in farming. So there's a risk reduction. Uh, piece there, which I know some people are starting to look at from a, you know, a lending and insurance perspective. Um, there's also, uh, you know, increased yield opportunities that are associated with improving your soil health. Um, in addition to that, you know, as you increase soil carbon, uh, because you increase the yield potential of the ground, you also increase the value of the land asset. 
Um, so from a you know land ownership and investment perspective, there's an opportunity there. Um, so there's 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 actually a lot of different ways that farmers can profit um, from pursuing a you know better soil health and and sustainable agricultural production. Yeah, they say to build on this, there's we haven't named the rule, but we have a we have a rule in the in our sort of investment horizon that if the half-life of the legislation is less than the time it'll take the technology to reach dominant design, avoid the avoid the subsidy from the legislation. So let me say that another, if, if we're an election away from policy maybe swinging the other way, it's very hard for a farmer to say, you know, I'm gonna invest time, money, resources in, going after a credit uh, if my payback is four or five years and the legislation may change in a year. The converse on that is I think from the from the policy standpoint where there's a there's an acknowledged concern about how carbon fits into the overall world, um, I think it's important for policymakers to think through this issue in terms of well as a way for us to insert capital into the front end of this to trigger the innovation cycle and get the momentum of that innovation cycle going. I think in all markets, we see like a cell phone market doesn't thrive because of a subsidy. It thrives because it's gotten better and better and better. Now it may be kicked off in a particular way. So I think that it, the more that the policymakers can can sort of see what the roadmap is for some of these technologies. So we you know, we're in the nascent part of some of the next generation technologies in which it's, it's possible that, that just through the common practice of farming, that we may see these things all line up over the next four or five years to a point where this problem sort of works itself out with a lot of complexity. When you talk about, when we first talked about things like trees, you know, for the most part, I'm ignorant on how that market works, but I'll pretend I think I know what that market does. And that is grow trees for 50 years, trees contain a certain amount of carbon, it's observable. Um, planting, things getting knocked around on planting, soil getting disrupted, cover crops getting disrupted, cover crops growing and then being decaying. And you know the dynamic in the, on the farm is a, is a more rapid dynamic than I'm gonna go grow trees for 75 years. Um, so again, I think it's, if we can help the policymakers better understand what the, the learning curve is going to be on the farm to enhance better practices, we might be able to come up with a, an approach that increases farming's contribution to the carbon goals without having to sit there and debate over whether policies are going to change next year. I guess the question, Carter, so, you know, you talk about policies changing, but really the genesis of this conversation was, you know, we, we were looking at this and we said, you know, with the new administration in, and is this an opportunity for true bipartisan cooperation in terms of trying to figure it out? And so I'll put it to James, is this an opportunity now? And does perhaps that bipartisan cooperation, does that, does that continue regardless of what happens? In terms of the in terms of the top ranks, yeah, no, I, I think there definitely is an opportunity now. I think it it 
hopefully it's one that's realized. And I say that, you know, looking just from a Senate ag perspective, um, this is something that has bipartisan interest and has had it for the last several years. There have been hearings in, in the ag committee, at least to, to talk to folks in the livestock sector in some, you know, in the research community about what has changed in agriculture over the last 10 years to try to, to really inform members about all the work that was done, mostly consumer driven or, or farmer driven uh, in that window of, of the last you know, 10 to 15 years. Um, I, I think there was there's bipartisan interest. You know, the Senate Ag Committee actually moved a bill just last week, uh, last Thursday. That was a bipartisan bill from Senator Braun from Indiana and uh, Senator Stabenow, the chair from from Michigan, uh, that was mostly focused on you know technical assistance, technical advisors for farmers, really focused on that tech transfer uh, to make sure that that these questions on you know how do I engage on my farm, as well as a, an advisory committee is included in that bill. Uh, to inform the secretary on the, on the marketplace and, and what's happening in the space to, to ensure that USDA is, is, is really engaged. So I think, you know, strong bipartisan support for that bill. I, I think it has somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 40 co-sponsors, Republicans and Democrats, uh, and it moved out of the committee um, on a voice vote just less than a week ago. And so I point to that as there is bipartisan opportunity and interest at this moment. Um, if we look back, like I said, 12 years ago to the last time Congress really looked at this topic, uh, you had a bill that came out of the House, very, very partisan in its approach with Waxman-Markey, um, the, the more uh, rigid approach of, of cap uh, and trade, very directive on, on the electricity side, particularly. Um, not a lot of flexibility for, for food processors and others within the value chain. And, and that's something that, you know, the conversation screeched to a halt. And so I think there's, there is bipartisan opportunity as well, as long as folks are willing to, to sort of give and take and, and sort of be thoughtful in, in, in how they engage. And really question that role of what is government's opportunity here? Is it is it focused on research, um, you know, as opposed to a more heavy-handed regulation? Which you know, if you look up and down that value chain from a farmer where they sit, sure there could be opportunity, um, but when they start thinking about it, you know, limits on the input side or or additional costs on the processing side or transportation side uh, could could you know put things to a screeching halt. And so I think there is a lot of interest and there is a lot of bipartisan opportunity as long as folks are sort of realistic about what's possible. And do you, do, do we ever look to others? Um, again, you know, before this conversation, um, I had a conversation and, you know, if I understand it correctly, Australia has taken a lead on establishing carbon markets with, with the full backing of the government. Mm -hmm. uh, Canada has a carbon market in each province. So thinking a little bit more about what do you, what do you think the government's role will ultimately be in the U.S. Do you have any kind of any kind of view on that? Yeah, I will say that the the messaging right now from Republicans and Democrats in, in Congress, on House and Senate, as well as the Biden administration, is is fairly focused on voluntary and, and market based. Um, that takes into account this big uncertainty on the trade front. I mean, U.S. agriculture heavily dependent on being competitive around the world. I'd say now, after the last several years, probably more than ever. And so and that was part of the challenge you know, 12 years ago was, was handcuffing um, kind of our export with, with additional cost or, or, or questions there. And so I think, um, you know, I will say the Biden administration recognizes the complexity here. I mean, in the, in the early days, bringing on, um, you know, John Kerry in a very international focused role and Gina McCarthy, former EPA administrator in a very domestic focused role, um, recognizes that this is sort of that yes and approach to, to the global view as well as what's happening here at home. 
Okay, um, and I think I think in your earlier comments, James, you know, one of my questions was, are we at a point where we can put an agreed upon price on carbon? And so I'd just be interested in from each of you, do you think we're there yet or no? I'll go first, Jody. But um, I, I personally don't think we're there yet. I mean, from where the government sits today, it's a lot of focus on on asking questions and, and trying to get answers to questions. You know, the government's role probably isn't best served on, on intervening in that, what is a price? Um, I know there's probably a lot of interest in that and some in, in, the, in the marketplace, um, but also, you know, to, to Carter's earlier point, that will guarantee that, that there are winners and losers solely based on that government decision. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, I don't think that anybody can say what the price for carbon uh, is or should be yet. Um, you know, I, I do like the idea that there are, are different markets that are taking different approaches and will probably have different prices uh, based on the, the level of verification that's required and, and the rigor associated with it and things like that, um, which gives people options. You know, I think one of the concerns with having the government get involved in, in this sort of thing is that you know, if they do anything that that hurts um, farmers' profits or their their, their ability to operate, um, you know, agriculture uh, agricultural outputs are are global commodities, and so if you put U.S. farmers at a disadvantage as compared to other farmers around the globe, um, then then that negatively impacts their their, their profitability and their ability to continue uh, operations. Um, it's also tough to set a, a fixed price or you know, a, a, a one standard fits all um, model as well, because there's so many local nuances uh, to agriculture, whether it's different soil types or different weather or um, you know, different size of operations, depending on geography or, or you know, all kinds of different um, uncontrollable variables that farmers have to deal with. And so it's, it's, I think it's, it's really hard to, to take a one size fits all um, approach, so. Okay. Um, you know, one thing um, you had mentioned in your comments, Jody, you know, what about additionality? And so, you know, the concept, it seems in some cases, the programs are entirely focused on benefiting new or incremental initiatives and aren't necessarily re recognizing or rewarding those that are already doing this. Is there a consensus on baselining or, or do the starting blocks continue to be reset? I don't think there's a consensus. I mean, different um, different programs are looking at it in in different ways. You know, uh, depending on how much data that you have going back in time, there are a lot of programs that will that will give farmers credit for things that they've done in the past, um, which you know, which in many respects seems like the the, the right thing to do. Um, there are others that you know pick a starting point when you join the program and then and then go forward from there. Um, you know, the the concern with farmers is you know those who are are farther out ahead, feel like they have, um, you know, are getting essentially penalized for, for being first movers. And, and to some extent they are, and, and you know, in another respect, they're also maybe ahead of the game because they've probably got healthier soils and they've benefited from uh, better production as a result of getting on board earlier. So, so you know, they, they probably took these steps for, for all of the right reasons from a, a production perspective in the first place. Um, and, and so just because they were, they were ahead of the game doesn't necessarily mean that, that they're being penalized, but, um, yeah, again, I, that's why I think it's, it's good to have, um, a multitude of approaches available. Okay. There, there is also a rigidity that I 
I don't think it's been acknowledged and I, you know, James has never asked you this, but um, we certainly have recently seen through the work by the National Wildlife Foundation that suggests that, that of the 30 or so principal crops in California, that about 20 of them really would grow better in the uh, Delta region. That a combination of the quality of the soil there or the availability of water or the low cost power uh, transportation to East Coast markets uh, and just the, the shifts in climate um, that are the longer term trends of shift to climate that that will sustain themselves for some time that that there's a there's an economic case to be made uh, to shift that production to to the Delta and I I would think in a combination of that you might you know, if you're using less water in California, you're not draining water reserves, less fire, you're, you know, there's this, this sort of macro level effect. And I don't know if there's a market, like if we did carbon markets, whether a price on carbon would properly price that rigidity in a way that the market would recognize the rigidity needs to move. And that's that's a sort of a macro level effect that there there are a combination of things that have made the industry that way and prevented it from moving and i don't know whether those are market-based things preventing it from moving or whether those are policy-based things preventing it from moving but that's like a as we think about and as we've gotten exposed to some of the innovations coming down the pike that's sort of a if you were God and you could rearrange things, you would, you would, you'd sort of wonder about that shift and whether that shift should be made. Is if we think about sort of U.S. policy production. Yeah, and I'd say there are probably also some cultural challenges. I mean, looking at yes. different parts of the country, and, and I think Jody touched on just making sure that that you know the flexibility on pricing um, ensures that growers from different regions can participate in, in the marketplace as it develops. And I think that's something that you know that complexity can't be over 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 described because it is is very challenging I mean, if, if someone does make a change in, in their production um, whether it's a crop or, or how they handle it you know some confidence that 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 uh, that shift makes sense I mean at the end of the day from a farmer's perspective all of this has to make economic sense uh, yeah operation and not just to them themselves but but oftentimes that that lens shifts to to you know their daughter and son in that next generation of growers as well so I wanted to get to some of the uh, questions coming in. Um, so Rob Neal has a question for Jody. He said, you said one problem is that there is not a universally accepted method for quantifying carbon. What solutions do you see emerging? Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of research that's being done as more people are looking at the opportunity to sequester carbon in soils to, uh, to try and I guess, uh, affirm or quantify the, the, the opportunity and the impact that uh, different practices have on, on sequestering carbon and then, and then on measuring it. I think one of the big questions that is still you know, up for debate is the, the permanence of some of that sequestration, which can really only be measured over time, right? Um, and so I think you know, the, the solutions are around, around research, around having more people looking at it, and to some extent, um, having people look at it over time. And again, I think that's where the opportunity is for there to be, to be multiple approaches. Um, 
and you know over time some of those will uh, will be shown to be superior to the others and so you know competition will uh, sort of weed out I think the the approaches that are that are better from from those that don't work work as well. Great. Um, I've got another question from Guy Pinard. If carbon increase of soil would become a revenue source for farmers, should a decrease in carbon content of the soil become a cost to farmers? So it sounds kind of a carrot in the stick. Yeah, so I guess I can I can maybe take that that first. You know, I think the I think a carbon decrease in soils is already a cost to farmers. Um, and that, that cost being that if you decrease the carbon in soils, you, you increase the variability of outcomes uh, that that farm is going to achieve from a yield and cost of operations perspective as uh, weather impacts their operations. Um, you know, soils with more carbon in it hold moisture better. And so if you have a drought and you have decreased the carbon in your soils, you're going to have a bigger impact from that. Uh, you'll probably also produce lower yields. And so, you know, in the short term, a farmer can reduce the carbon in their soils and essentially mine the soil. Um, and, and maybe produce better profits over a short period of time. But in the long run, um, it's, it's, it, it will cost them. So, you know, I don't know that you necessarily have to create a stick for it because I think that is already recognized to exist by most farmers. Okay. Um, I, wanna, I wanna try to expand the conversation a little bit um, and move beyond the farm. Um, in terms of industry, we've seen a bunch of press releases from the likes of FedEx, United Airlines, Amazon, I think we had one recently from Apple, um, where they announced major billion dollar investments in carbon reduction. And then they put a target date for reaching very specific goals. And, you know, and so if we just got done saying, you know, we're not at a point where we can put an agreed upon price on carbon I'm just, I'm just wondering, are these goals reachable in the timeframes laid out? Or is this just good PR at this point? Or are they putting out these releases and, you know, in the confidence that they're going to be able to figure it out later? I might start that, you know, when I said we're in a very different place in the conversation than we were 10, 12 years ago, I think a lot of it's driven by this consumer interest and this uh, the, the kind of consumer facing interest. Um, airlines, energy companies, even very different positions. I mean, we've even seen the U.S. Chamber come out, you know, focused on marketplace um, solutions on the climate front, very different than we were, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Uh, but I, in my opinion, you know, there's still so many unknowns on, on kind of what a credit looks like, how a credit operates, um, given the information that's currently available, that a lot of it is driven by excitement and interest and wanting to be a player. I mean, it seems like no matter where you sit in that value chain, whether you're the farmer who's been familiar with these issues, as I think Carter mentioned for eons, um, or you're that consumer facing, you know, food company or, or, or a transportation entity that's wanting to be part of that conversation. I think there's a, a lot of information is lacking. A lot of those announcements are high level commitments um, with the details to come later. Um, you know, even if they might fall a bit short, you know, in 2030, 2050, uh, I think that that research that's being done to, to hit those targets um, is going to make this conversation a lot better informed in you know the next several years. It, if we look back at what happened on the energy effort, so call it 09, 10, 11, when there was a lot of pressure on corporations on uh, transportation and 
and other issues. A lot of the corporations said, look, we're going to track this. We're going to pay attention to it. We're going to try to get on it. And they made various decisions at the time. And I, I generally think that moved in the right direction. Now, they may have manifested it like we're going to build all lead, lead, lead buildings. And they initially said we're going to build lead platinum. And then they sort of said, well, we'll do lead gold or lead silver. And they, they sort of evolved their mission. And I, I think they just generally move in the right direction. So I think that that's a positive force. Uh, are they available? You know, when we think about adapting this, I would say that we've, we've got sort of uh, three clumps of things. We've got the first clump, which is, this is stupid simple. We could change this practice. It would cost less. We have the technology and it would deliver X. So that's the first. The second class is, takes a little bit of effort. I've got to buy new hardware, new gear. I've got to change. It's a little bit more involved. The cost benefit is longer. It's a little uncertain. Um, but you know, over time with normal swap out of equipment, I'll make that change. And the last bit is, hey, this is a pretty radical change. We don't even have the technology to, to do it. Um, I don't know in the farming community, how much is it of type one right now? What we are seeing with regenerative, uh, what we're seeing with some uh, use of biologics, we're seeing advancements in, in uh, nitrogen fixation technology that, that may create some radical changes. I, I think that we're going to come up with in short order, already have and in short order, we'll reach some practices that are very easy on a market-based basis to adopt. And frankly, if some of the corporations even act as a, a bit of a pressure point to, to help bring some focus, it generally corporations do a better job messaging than, than policymakers. Uh, you know, if Walmart and Whole Foods say, you know, well, here's the way Walmart did it. Walmart would say, look, we're going to pay X for LTL shipping, but if you're natural gas rather than diesel, we're going to buy more of your stuff, you know, given the choice. And so that just nudges people in the right direction. Uh, so I think it's a positive force. I would not expect over the long term Apple to be the reason why this problem is solved. They've, they got to focus on the phone business. Yeah. You know, I think if you look at the commitments that a lot of these companies have made, they're, they're, they're big enough in scale that most of these companies can't do it within their own four walls. Uh, if you do a life cycle analysis on most of these consumer products, um, you know, the, the primary, and primary environmental impact comes out of the supply chain. And so, you know, these big commitments are made and then they look back at the supply chain, which, you know, often begins with agriculture and they say, all right, I'm, I need you to help me achieve the goal that I've committed to. Um, and then there's always the, the, the challenge of, okay, well, who pays, right? And, you know, I think one of, the, one of the things that we have seen over time is that as more technology is uh, adopted in agriculture, we see things moving uh, in, in the right direction uh, anyways, just because it's, it's uh, you know, uh, com competition drives it and farmers are becoming more efficient uh, because that makes them more profitable, uh, helps them maintain or grow their operations and, and stay in business. And uh, as more technology becomes available in ag, I think we will continue to see an acceleration in 
the improvement in the efficiency of agricultural production. And so that, uh, that demand from the end of the supply chain, from the consumer side of the supply chain, can only help to, to accelerate uh, both the technology development and its adoption. Um, so I think that's all, that, that's all positive and you know, all accrues to the, to the benefit of, of agriculture as we, as we adopt more and more technology to become more efficient and more sustainable. Because I, I don't think there's necessarily a conflict of interest between sustainable agriculture production and uh, profitable agriculture production. You can, you, you can and necessarily have to do both at once. And so um, whether a farmer pursues either one of those aims, I think they, I think they arrive at the, at the same place in the end. Yeah, they will, they are, we certainly seem from a technology standpoint, they're, they've probably already converged. So regenerative, you know, there's more enough comfort that regenerative can, can operate effectively. I think there are two rigidities that I don't understand how to deal with. So um, one of those rigidities is the ethanol market says, make this amount of corn and make it this way. And it's a large part of the market. And so um, that's a challenge. And the other part of the rigidity is fertilizer is effective and you got to make fertilizer in big plants. That's almost like a coal plant from a standpoint of there's... You, you got to produce this huge volume. You can't increment down. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of variability in that. And so, one thing that we've looked at on the venture side a little bit, not we haven't really succeeded at this, but we've sort of been like, okay, can we find a way to use ethanol plants to use corn for another product? And a you know product would be like synthetic silk. So a higher value product uses corn uses the same fermentation process as ethanol and can we swap people away and then move them into a different kind of market that, you know, if you can then make textiles in a more efficient, effective way, you've created a higher value added product and you start, you start to blur. But I think as we, we have made a bunch of policy decisions that have sort of created these rigidities in the system and we're going to have to figure out how to back out of them. Uh, over time, or, or what we may very well see is people from the ethanol lobby or people from the, the fertilizer lobby come in and say, look, we're rent-seeking, we want to do things in a particular way, and that they'll, they'll sort of pollute the policy in, a, in an opposite direction, where, where naturally we, things, the technology around regenerative is getting to the point that we would expect higher quality product, lower, lower carbon footprint, and more profitability. Okay, um, I wanna to get to a couple more questions that have come in. Um, we had a question from Katan at Uko Ag, and he's asking, how do we account for historic regenerative practices that farmers have been following when quantifying carbon? I think you might've touched on this, Jody. Yeah, I think it's, it's a tough question that there's, there's maybe no, no perfect answer for. Um, you know, there are programs that are uh, that will allow for farmers to get credit for things that they've done in the past, as long as they have the data and the records to go back in time and show um, the changes that they made and the outcomes that they achieved from those. So I think that's that's great. Um, and then, you, you know, hopefully those farmers who, who were early adopters did it for uh, all of the right reasons and will continue to uh, you know, to, to push forward. And so, you know, so whether that, whether or not they get paid for things that they did in the past, um, they're probably better off 
anyways for having done it. Um, you know, in in terms of their operation is probably um, more profitable and and um, more valuable as a result. So, so I think there's I think there's both opportunities there. Okay. Um, I've got another question from this one from Neil Clemens. Farmers he's talked to are interested in this whole thing until they hear about the need for three years of data and operations across the field, plus invoices for product supply. One study I saw from a farm management company suggested fewer than 5% of farms actually have this level of data. Yeah, that's... Uh... That's certainly a probably a true statement. Uh, you know, I think there's there's more and more farmers that are using uh, digital tools for for record keeping, and there you know there are systems like you know John Deere Operation Center that keeps records of of what has been done. You know, um, Centera. One of the things we do is combine data from all kinds of different sources uh, to to try and create a a record that can be used for the for these purposes. So. Um, you know, one of the challenges is is even where the records do exist, they're usually they're usually all over the place, and so you have to pull all of that information together um, in order to 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 put it together in a in a package. And so, um, yeah, it's I think I think it's a challenge. I think it's one that that going forward is is probably less of an issue because because you know so much of of agriculture is now done uh, both the financial transactions and and the practices are applied. Um, there's a, there's a digital record of everything that's happening now in many cases. And Jody, is that, I assume that that comments around being organic, right? Or is that around carbon credits? The three years reminds me of an organic comment. Is that right? Oh, uh, I'm not sure from the question, but there, there are some of the, some of the carbon markets require you to have um, even five or more years of baseline data. Uh, to bring to the table because they want to if uh, where they are concerned with additionality uh, they essentially want to see what you have done in the past so that if you're going to get credit for a practice change now that you're essentially not taking credit for a practice change that you've already done which is not going yeah. to sequester additional carbon so so many of the even the carbon markets do require you to go back in time with data and i think jody touched on earlier i mean that price for carbon there could be a premium price for someone that has all this verifiable data but someone who's engaged more from a practice perspective. Um, there could be opportunity there, maybe just less of a, less of, or less rich of a benefit. Um, we had a follow-up question from Katan. Um, he asked, I'm not sure if it's a he or she, do you think the accepted solutions will be more around precise measurement or will predictive modeling based on farmer practice be accepted? Uh I, James, I, maybe I'll, I'll give mine and then I'll let you, I'll let you elaborate. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think in the near term, the, the practice based is, is going to gain a lot of traction uh, immediately. And then over time, I think we will see a shift where, where more measurement will, uh, will be required in order to verify these things. I mean, I think we, and we've seen this happen in, in other uh, sustainability models. You know, it, it uh, if you look at like uh, the palm oil industry, for example, uh, you know the first uh, the first palm oil green palm credits and things like that were were um, you know mass balanced. They were based on practices that were done. They weren't necessarily traceable through a supply chain. And then you know over time we've seen companies um, pay more and be more interested in um, being able to trace things back specifically through their supply chain. And so so I think what we'll see is over time uh, 
probably, yeah, probably near-term practice-based, long-term, probably more measurement will be required. There's, there's some additional technology that we need to develop as an industry in order to make the, the, the cost and the effort required to measure carbon on a, at scale um, to, make, to make that possible and more efficient. That's, that's today, it's a, it's a huge manual effort to go out and, and get so, enough soil samples to, to do that, so. Yeah, and that's what I was gonna hit on is a scale question. I mean, that's really, I think the, the limiting factor here is uh, to, to ensure that folks across the country, different types of operations, different sizes of operations have that ability to participate, um, to, to build that scale. To really make this work from a farmer's, generally from a farm perspective, I think is is key, and and that argues for a more practice-based approach uh, for, for the majority of folks in the near term. And there's there's research being done now. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, of, of that. What does a perfect situation look like versus what does a possible situation look like? And, and I think the conversation 10, 12 years ago was really focused on perfect, and, and I think this more market-based evolutionary approach that, that we're seeing right now driven by consumers is really more possible focused. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's research being done now on things like using different, um, you know, wavelengths of light and satellite imagery and things like that to, to uh, measure carbon remotely or, you know, on machine equipment that would measure carbon in real time as a, as a piece of equipment travels across a field. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of, of technology that is, not quite there yet, but is, you know, is, is in, is in various pipelines or stages of development that I think will, will over time make the, make the process of getting more samples more efficiently possible. Then we had a, uh, we had a question from Richard Miller. Um, and I, I think I'll throw this at Carter. Is there a fund investing in regenerative farms um, transformation with farmers and capturing a return with carbon. What size farm makes this viable for investor with family farms to be educated on the transformation? Not sure. I think the question is what size farm makes this viable for an investor? Yeah, I'm not sure I've got a good answer on that. I do know that. Um... There are organizations, family farm group and such, and the Family Farms Foundation that are working collaboratively to sort of help people through on the regenerative side. Uh, we have seen a business model that I believe works down to about 500 acres that's focused around a combination of crop and animals and, and it's a little bit uh, going back to more of a classic um, farming practice, you know the the animals on the on the land actually helps with some of the regenerative. So there there are a few mixes like that that I've seen that that um, suggest performance at you know below a thousand, below five hundred acres. What we're seeing on a in terms of some of the more regenerative practices, and Jody, I don't know if you've seen something different, but we we tend to see an operator that sort of got 8,000 acres, uh, which is not small. And they, sometimes I call them the Chevy farmer, meaning they're, they're looking for a value and, but they're willing to look for something with quality. And, and so they will dedicate 2,000 acres to test plot some of these acres. And they have a little bit more time to 
think through the issues, pay attention to the issues, buy some technology. And so as we think about it from an entrepreneur, who should the entrepreneur go to and talk to to get as an early adopter customer? We, we tend to think that they should go after that 8,000 acre farmer. If we're thinking about a farmer and how can they be productive, um, I've seen, as I say, I've, I've seen a few business models um, that might work down to 1,500 acres, but uh, they're few and far between and take a lot of dedication by the, the farmer to, to, to go beyond the, the norm to, to operate effectively. Yeah, you know, I think as there's there, I've seen programs that are out there where different organizations, and I've even seen some companies will, you know, will uh, sponsor or help to finance uh, equipment or assets for some of these smaller farmers to adopt new practices. So, you know, some of these things like you know no-till seed drills or you know variable rate application equipment, things like that, are are really expensive assets, um, which is sometimes cost prohibitive for smaller operations, and and so. You know, that's certainly one of the barriers to entry that, that yeah, I mean, I've seen, you know, I've seen financing um, solutions that have been, have been brought to market for folks to, to, to help them adopt. Yeah, Billy, my, all the comments I just made were really around row crops, not specialty. Mm-hmm. Um, we are seeing opportunities in specialty to use more automation that might be shared. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think comments like Jody's making in terms of we, we do think from a, investment thesis standpoint that it would make sense to uberize so to speak some of that infrastructure as it applies more to something like specialty not positive about this but but more on the specialty side where there's a combination of labor pressure you know row crop has done a lot to automate um specialty has a little bit of a harder challenge and then uh, the next generation of of people that would potentially harvest are not showing up. You, you, it's very difficult, despite the immigration challenges that people just don't wanna do the work any longer at, at, at any price. So we, we do see an opportunity where there's gonna be a natural migration of more technology into specialty um, to, to deal with yield and uh, the harvesting. Um, so that may be a platform under which people can accelerate the adoption of better carbon practices. And I will say from a government perspective, I mean, the last farm bill, there were some conversations within the research space on looking at some new authorities to help leverage, um, whether it's especially crop focused equipment um, or, or sort of some, some ag security topics, you know, some, some new authorities that were provided to USDA uh, to, to try to look at some of these questions, not with a carbon lens so much as you know, more that mechanization labor lens. Well, I think there's some tools that are already existing um, within that federal policy framework that that USDA I think is looking to adopt. I mean, their announcement last week was looking at existing authorities and how can they use CRP and other things. Uh, and, and James, this uh, this actually is a non sequitur, but uh, so it ag seems fairly bipartisan compared to everybody else. <laughs> But ag and EPA do not seem like they mix. So what, I mean, can you like do an over under on, you know, I can imagine a lot of people getting along with the ag secretary and the farming community, but I I don't get the impression that they would fall over themselves to fall in love with EPA. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a challenge. It was really evident, um, not so much during the last administration as the previous administration. You know, a lot of focus on water and some of those things that, that really hit the ag sector hard, that regulatory framework hard. And I think you know, looking at some of the pesticides and, and product limits. Yeah. And so I think some of those questions, when I said earlier that bipartisanship is possible, as long as folks don't don't uh, let other priorities get in the way. I mean, I think those are some of the priorities that, that, that could could really rankle these relationships. Yeah, so in that environment, I recall that there was percolating along a little bit of discussion about EPA or somebody suing all the farmers for um, yeah, off fall or, or effluent and things coming off the farm. And that, that when it was expressed to me, it seemed like that was getting pretty aggressive. Yeah. I mean, would that, you think that that will pop back up again? I hope not. Um, I think there, you know, the, the dial definitely moved on on the clean water front, and then in the last administration, some of that was pulled back, and, and hopefully those conversations aren't all reopened um, from from day one. Um, you know, looking at, at the data question, I mean, that's where farmers get very nervous when you're asking when the government's asking for data, uh, particularly in the livestock sector. You know, there's been historical uh, challenges with keeping that data, you know, secure and and not releasing yeah. it publicly. And so I think. Um, you know, definitely some challenges there as the government looks to be involved. And I think it's that question of what's the real goal here, um, you know, making sure that, that farmers stay at the table and they stay in business. And it's not so much just on getting to that perfect very, very quickly. So we're, yeah. we're quickly running out of time, but I think we have time for maybe one last question. And so I'd like to pose it. Chrysonia's central thesis is food is health. But people seem vague on carbon from a food and health standpoint. And in, in terms of the general public, what do you think the level of understanding is regarding carbon? It seems to be thought of in the same way people think about recycling. Is this the right way to think about it? Or do you think people's perceptions will, will change over time? I think from a consumer perspective, um, the real challenge with, with most topics that are complex in agriculture and science-based is that consumers have a hard time and, and probably a thousand different ideas of, of what that definition looks like. You know, we saw this really front center. We've seen it over the last 20 years on the biotech conversation, biotech labeling, GMOs. Um, and so I think it's very similar in the carbon space. You know, folks think that, that carbon in the air is bad and, and, and they're right, but, but don't always recognize that the carbon cycle is natural and required to produce that safe and affordable food on the plate. And so I think it's something that, um, you know, will be a, a flashpoint for conversation in, in the public sphere, in the consumer sphere. Um, but hopefully at the end of the day, can, you know, cooler heads prevail. Uh, not sure if I targeted that exactly, but I don't think consumers have a really good sense for what they mean when they think carbon is, is, is you know, a conversation they want to engage in. Okay. Yeah, I think that there's, <clears throat> there's sort of an overall uh, health halo associated with sustainability where people kind of um, mix together, um, you know, nu nutrition and what's good for the environment and, and, and things like that. And so, so I do think that there's a, a, a health halo, whether it's, you know, whether it's rooted in, in, sci in science or not, you know, I think that, I think that people sort of equate the two things together. Um, and, and so there's, I, I think that people have a, an increasing understanding and awareness of the sustainability of the food that they eat. But, you know, what I've seen is that if you, you know, if you ask consumers an unaided survey question, you know, so what, what do you look for? 
when you make a food purchase, um, the nutrition topic comes up much more frequently than the sustainability topic. If you ask folks, do you care about the sustainability of the food that, that you eat? Everybody, absolutely we do. Um, but if you, if, you ask, if you ask the question unaided, you get, you get more health than you do sustainability typically. Okay. Yeah, I think buried in there, you know, we're transitioning out of the anti-GMO mode. People look at CRISPR and say, you know, my parents just had cancer cured by CRISPR. Maybe CRISPR is not bad. You know, that, you know, being able to affect the genetics of these situations is important to optimizing performance. It strikes me that the carbon conversation will be more reserved as, as one figure of merit at the B2B level. And I, I'm not a consumer branding kind of person, but I don't, I think that the nutritional quality issue um, is more dominant in the label readers than, hey, here's a carbon footprint. I don't think I've seen any CPG packaging that includes any indication of carbon footprint. Um, it'd be interesting to see what people rank that as, but, the other thing we got to recognize is as we think about more like what app harvest is doing and more indoor farming and synthetic biology, if I put, if I put this window out 25 years, you know, 20, 30% of production that we're seeing right now is going to be done through some form of synthetic biology or indoor farming. Um, and we'll be in a much different kind of environment uh, than we're currently seeing. And I, you know, as venture investors, we're thinking more out, five, seven, 10 years. So I don't know if that applies to the current market. All right, well, with that, I think we should wrap it up. We'll keep everyone on time. I just wanted to thank James, Jody, and Carter. This was a lively conversation. It will be available on chrisonia.org. Um, we'll have the archive up probably within the you know, next 24, 48 hours. Um, and we hope that everyone online, I tried to get it to as many questions as we, I could, um, but we hope you'll join us. We'll do our next Crisonia conversation on Wednesday, May 26th. And with that, I just, uh, thanks again.